This morning's reading comes from Joel, chapter 2. Now, I don't have a church Bible in front of me, I'm afraid, so I can't tell you the page number, but Joel follows Hosea, and it's just before Amos. So, is that tricky as well? (laughs) Okay, Daniel, (laughs) then Hosea, then Joel, Amos, and Micah, I think, is next. Yeah. Anyway, Joel chapter 2, and I'm starting to read at verse 18. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. With its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Thanks, Steve. Um, I think the easiest way to find Joel is to say it's the sixth book before Habakkuk, personally. But uh, (laughs) there we go. Uh, Let's have a pray. Let's pray together. Father, please would you uh, speak to us today through your word, the Bible, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I'd love you to imagine um, this. Uh, You were estranged from your parents when you were 16. Uh, You were a lot younger then, and you had lots to learn, and you went to live in Canada. And and since then, you've had no contact with your parents at all. They've had no uh, contact with you. You don't know where they are. Uh, They don't know where you are. And now you're in your 40s. 
and you became a Christian a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, gradually your life has just been turned upside down as you get to know Jesus better. And now you're thinking through the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Um, so the first stop is, well, I'm going to try and work out where they are. Now, you had some really good lifelong friends who lived just down the road from your mum and dad. You don't know if they're even alive, but anyway, you send them a letter and they write back saying they're still there. Your mum and dad are still there. Uh, you Dad's not doing so well. He's 75 and he's in a wheelchair and he's got motor neuron disease. Your mum's 70 and she's got early onset dementia. But you decide you've got to go home and soon. And so you send them a letter to say uh, that you'll be returning. And uh, as you walk up their road, there are, there are more cars and the trees are bigger. And there are a couple of ugly new houses they've built in the last uh, few years. And, uh, uh, and then you turn right into your parents' home. The crunch of the driveway under your feet is really rather familiar. Uh, there's someone down the road cutting the grass. And you reach out to ring the doorbell, and as you do so, the door opens before you have a chance to press the push. And there are your mum and dad. Old, frail, your dad in a wheelchair, and both of them are uh, beaming through tears of joy. Well, what happens next? I'll leave you to work out the details. I, I imagine, uh, because we're English, it will involve a cup of tea, and uh, there'll probably be tears and hugs and, uh, uh, and a lot of talking and a lot of forgiveness. Well, why do I tell you that? Because uh, there is a return. And then the idea, the thought of, well, what happens next? And last week, as we're working our way through Joel, uh, we had this uh, command, this encouragement to return. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, as we've just sung. The question of this week's passage, though, is, well, what next? What does it actually look like to return? What's it look like to go back, to come back to God? What are they, why should I do so, if you like? But why return? What's it look like? What is life like when you have? Well, there are, um, uh, there are six points I'd like to make. I might make a, make a seventh bonus point. It depends how we go. Um, but anyway, the first one is this. Um, what's return look like? It's a reversal. So when we come back to God, as, as God's people, uh, the Lord is speaking to him, he's encouraged them to return. And here he's saying, look, this is what it's like. If you return, this is what it will be like. And he's saying that to us as well. And uh, so you can see here, verse 18, uh, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. We'll come to the jealous bit in a minute. Verse 19, the Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. That's quite a reversal from the way things have been in the time of judgment and in the time of locusts coming and just ravaging the land. But verse 18 <clears throat> excuse me, is, uh, is really a pivot. It's a, it's a turning point to the book of Joel. Let's read it again. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. It's an about turn. Now, this plague of locusts that Joel is really 
focused on um, uh, was huge and a somber warning of worse to come if God's people don't do an about return and return to him. And uh, uh, but this in verse 18, we see uh, the beginning of what it is like. When God's people come back to him, it is a reversal. But it looks a bit odd, doesn't it? God being jealous. I mean, don't really think. I mean, a jealousy is not a good thing, is it? And uh, you know, we don't like the idea of jealousy. And God being jealous? Yes, God being jealous. Because that's his huge concern and commitment to care for his land and his people. There's quite a land and people thing going on here. You'll see it comes up a number of times. So it's a bit like this. Uh, my wife for Anna and our children, our grandchildren, is such that, although generally speaking I'm a fairly placid person, if someone did harm to them, I can tell you I would not be placid. And uh, uh, because of my love for them, I want to be lovingly protective of my family. And here, in verse 18, there's a focus on God's loving concern, God's jealousy for his, both his land and his people. For both his land and his people. And both his land and his people had been at peril from the locust invasion. And they were repeated as we'll see a little bit later on. And, uh, uh, and they are both gr- uh, central to God's great covenant promises for people. So he's saying, look, I want to create a people. That's what he said to Abraham, wasn't it? I want to create a people, and I want to give them a land to live in, the promised land. So you've got God's people, uh, the people of Israel, living in God's land. People and land. Here, the locusts, are, uh, in judgment of God, are ravaging the land and, and harming the people. And when we look and see what it means for us, it's no longer just a a spiritual people in a physical place, but we're talking about the people of God, the church. That's our people. That's God's people. Now the church, Christian people. And the lands is our promised land. It's heaven. Our destination. And uh, heaven is a great reversal. So you look at verse 19. The Lord replied to them, I'm sending you uh, grain, new wine, olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to nations. What a reversal that is. But this is pointing forward to our promised land with God's people there. Heaven. And it's, prom- and it's looking forward to the, uh, the satisfaction of being there. More about that later on as well. Um, but where do you see new wine in the Bible? You see, it's a number of times here. It's verse there in 19. I'm sending you grain, new wine. And it comes later on. So look at verse uh, 24. The vats overflow with new wine and oil. And where do you see that in the New Testament? When Jesus turns up, isn't it? Right near the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 2. And verses 1 to 12, he goes to a wedding. Cana. And what's he do? Well, he turns water into gallons and gallons and gallons of probably the best wine anyone there had ever tasted. Extraordinary. And you see why John is telling us that? Because in Jesus, the, the, uh, the new age is dawning. That new Jesus is opening up this way to the glorious blessings of God in the new creation. Heaven is a reversal. Heaven is where there is, there is no more sin or pain or frustration or failure or disappointment or tears or parting. Yeah, it's just, and it's not just that these things will be wiped away, 
they will be reversed. So sin will be replaced with holiness. Pain will be replaced with joy. Frustration will be replaced with fulfillment, satisfaction. Failure will be replaced with success. Disappointment with pleasure. Tears with smiles. Parting with togetherness forever. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that, that, that all these wrong and bad things in our current life will be not only uh, just stopped and taken away, but in heaven they will actually be positively reversed. Return to God. It looks like a reversal. <laughs> it is. It really is the most wonderful reversal. Second thing, it is also and this we've also, uh, already mentioned in passing, um, a removal. So verse 20, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in a dead sea and its western ranks in a Mediterranean sea. The older version of the NIV has it slightly differently to that. And then it says, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Now, partly that's talking about locusts. We'll come to the locusts in a minute. But partly it's talking about the fact the Assyrians and the Babylonians, who both invaded uh, God's people's lands, they actually came from the north. So when it talks about the northern horde, it can be talking about the locusts, although that's unusual, but it can happen. But it's definitely talking most likely about the Babylonians coming in just uh, after 600 B.C., to take the country, to destroy the people, to destroy the temple, to destroy the worship, to destroy the country. If you think of what's happening in um, Afghanistan at the moment, there's quite a parallel. It's hideous, isn't it? It was hideous then. So this removal. Now, um, getting back to the locusts. The winds actually can drive locusts before them. So if there's a westerly wind, the locusts, as it's saying here, could be uh, driven into the Dead Sea. If it's an easterly wind, they can be driven into the Mediterranean. They get over the sea. They're not good swimmers, locusts. They drown. And then uh, and then they get washed up on the beach. And uh, frankly, they get washed up on the beach of the Dead Sea, the Med, and so on. And you need a JCB to clear them up. And you need a face covering. Because uh, they, abs- they abs- locusts that are dead and rotting absolutely stink appallingly. Um, uh, I read a Victorian commentary on this referring to dead locusts on the beach. And it said, which often have been known to produce putrid exhalation. So there we have it. Um, it then went on to talk about pestilential odours and a putrid effluvia. So there we are. Basically, in English, it was an appalling stench. And, uh, and it's a picture of what God does to his enemies. The locusts, he used them, he destroyed them. The Assyrians, or more likely the Babylonians in this case, he used them, he destroyed them. It's a picture on that last day when all God's enemies will be removed. They will no longer exist. And when we get there, It will be a perfect and wonderful existence for all eternity. I hope this morning is heartwarming for us. As we understand a little bit more about what we're looking forward to. So uh, reversal and removal or removal and reversal. Um, Then um, 
replete. Now, I'm sorry I'm alliterating, but uh, I thought I'd just give it a go. I don't normally do it. Um, No one uses the word replete, do they? My grandmother did. We would often go down to uh, Lye, a little village near Tombridge where my grandmother lived, and we'd have afternoon tea, and you'd say, uh, uh, Nana's, you want any more cake? And she'd say, literally, she would say, no, thank you, I'm quite replete. She was awfully nice. It means full. I mean, we would say FTB, full to bursting, or uh, other, have you got other abbreviations? TTW? Tonsils treading water. Uh, BTA? Back teeth awash. And uh, so we would say things like that, but my nana would say, no, thank you, I'm replete. How nice. And, uh, um, uh, and the thing is, you see, it's talking about being full up. It's talking about being satisfied. And that's what it's like, going to be like in heaven. In this new heaven, new earth, we will be full up. We will be satisfied. There'll be no more longings because all our longings will have been met. Just sheer enjoyment of God. Look at verse 19 here. Um, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil enough to satisfy you fully. Now that will be the case when uh, his promise for his people going back to the land. But also it's, it, it is meant for us to see actually when we get to our land, we will be satisfied, fully filled, overflowing. It's again there in uh, verse 26. You have plenty to eat until you are full. Full. Every good longing. Every good hope. Every groan, every good ambition, every good intention, fully and completely satisfied by our good God in heaven. Return to the Lord your God. What's it going to be like? It will be the most enormous reversal. It will be the most extraordinary removal. It will be a wonderful feeling of being replete, full satisfied. Um, And that all leads to the fourth thing, which is rejoicing. Look at the beginning of verse 21 there. Do not be afraid. And it comes again in verse 22. Sometimes people are afraid of heaven, it seems to me. They're afraid of the process of getting there. No need to be afraid. We're facing death. There's no need to be afraid. Do not be afraid, land of Judah, Judah, verse 21. Instead, he's saying, be glad and rejoice. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Has done in order that, you know, what it's saying is, it's a, it, it, sometimes the Bible says things in the past to mean we're talking about the future and it's so certain it's basically as if it's already happened. That's what he's doing here. Okay. Surely the Lord has done great things. There is plenty of time for rejoicing here. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. Extraordinary, isn't it? Joy is a serious business of heaven. You will be more joyful in heaven than you have ever been. Think of the time on this planet when you've been most joyful. Maximize, uh, multiply it by a billion. Spread it out to all eternity. And it will give you a small little picture of what the joy will be like when we get to be there with our Lord Jesus for all eternity. It is, it will be extraordinary. And here for the people here, um, have a look at... Um, Uh, Verse 23, because be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains. Again, another past tense meaning it's done. Okay, he has given you the autumn rains, 
Why? Because he's faithful or righteous. Same word. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. That's why we go to the Mediterranean in the summer, because it's the only global climate which has a winter maximum rainfall. I'm a geographer. I know about these things, okay? And, uh, but that's why the folks there, you can almost be guaranteed it's going to be sunny and it's not going to rain if you go to the Med in August. You go in October and November, you can almost guarantee you're going to get wet. Okay, that's the way it is. And you can see it here, autumn rains. Sign of God's blessing on his people, because that means things are going to grow. And he says, well, rejoice and be glad because of God's goodness. He is faithful. And he's saying this whole cycle of nature is going to be restored, and we can rejoice in that. And you return, God is faithful. You rejoice. We rejoice here on earth with God's people. And we rejoice in heaven when we get there with God's people for all eternity. Heaven's such a good place. Heaven, the new heaven, the new earth. So much to look forward to. And all because of God's wonderful, wonderful faithfulness. There's also an element of um, repayment. Is that what it says there? Down at the bottom, you can uh, um, repayment. Look at verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. But I will repay you. Or uh, if you have the, uh, the English standard version, uh, it says restore. It's actually a legal term. It's a, it's a kind of term that's used when you're um, talking about compensation for damages. And it seems in verse 25, when it says the years the locusts have eaten, it's probably repeated locust swarms. Warning, warning, another warning. Here's another warning. Every time they come, make sure you realize this is a warning. And God is promising here to restore or even to to pay back compensation, if you like that idea, uh, for the judgment that he has done. When his people return to him. So it's saying that actually when you return to him, the judgments that he has had to give to this planet will be more than compensated for when you get to glory together. Isn't that encouraging? So all the rough times, the bad times, all this, uh, I think this global pandemic we are suffering at the moment is a warning from God. It will be more than compensated for. When we get to glory, more than compensated for, more than repaid, if you like, through, because of these simple and yet profound joys of heaven. Wonderful. Wonderful. So you can, you can think in terms of uh, uh, perhaps a, 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 we've got old-fashioned kitchen scales. We've got some on the windowsill in our kitchen. Um, you know, we make, we make bread in the bread maker. So you put the flour on one side and the weights on the other and you want to get it about right. The balance between the pains and the troubles and the difficulties of this earth and the joys and the, uh, the, the, the waiters in heaven are not when you've just weighed out the flour right. Because uh, before you put the flour on, you put the, in my case, the 200 gram thingamajig weight on the other side. And it goes dunk down like that, doesn't it? So if you think of all our, all our pains and our sorrows and our troubles and our difficulties and our loss and our struggles, the worst of it now, and it's here on this side. 
And then you think of, of the, uh, uh, the joys of heaven. And it's just like you put a 20-ton bag of flour on the other side of the scales. It's like, it's like someone's just put a, you know, a whole ton load of gold bars on the other side. There is no comparison. Straight down, heavy, there. Extraordinary, wonderful, isn't it? This is our God and this uh, repayment, this, if you like, this compensation, but just simply the joy that we will have when we're there with him for all eternity. And then, I think there's a bit of last one we'll do, uh, recognition. Recognition. I've been really struck um, just recently, a number of you will, like me, been reading through Ezekiel in the quiet times. And around about chapters 10 and 11, and then in the more recent ones we've been doing, there is this phrase, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And it's here as well. So look at verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. You will know when we get to heaven. You may have one or two little doubts. You may be a little bit apprehensive about it, not quite sure, but you think that you place your hand tremblingly in the Lord's hand as you approach your last days. Or he comes and you're in huge awe about the whole thing and you, you hope you'll be all right. And then you realize, and then you'll know. You will know that I am the Lord your God. Now, uh, here we have a kind of climax to this uh, passage. 18 verse 18 is the pivot. And then here we have the climax to it. Then you will know that I am in Israel and I am the Lord your God. And it sets up next week beautifully, which is the, 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 uh, uh, the bit which was quoted by Peter on the uh, day of Pentecost. Looking forward to next week. Um, but there are covenant words here. There are words about uh, uh, I, these, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God, uh, about my people, uh, right at the end of verse 27. And those are words of covenant, of God committed to his people and God's people committed to him. They're showing relationship. They're showing commitment. They're showing the relationship between God and his people and the relationship of commitment of God to us. Now, I could have headed this uh, section reassurance. So when we get to heaven, we'll know that this faith of ours was true, that God is God, that there is no other, that we are right to believe. And despite the persecutions and despite the scorn heaped on some Christians, they were right to stand firm. Then you will know that I'm in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. And then that little phrase at the end, never again will my people be shamed. That's at the end of verse 26 as well. In fact, there are three never agains. It's in verse 19 as well. Uh, You come back to me and you keep back with me, then this is what's going to happen. And when we reach heaven, because of Jesus' death, because of his resurrection, then 
those, <clears throat> those words will be wonderfully and literally true. You will know that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other safe for all eternity. As we recognize that God is God. Now that is something to rejoice over, isn't it? That is something absolutely for us to rejoice over today. Return to the Lord your God. If you're not a Christian, you need to do that. You just simply say to him, I want to come back to you. I want to return to you. Maybe you've been wandering a bit. Maybe you've been drifting a bit. Maybe during this whole pandemic time. It's been difficult, hasn't it? Well, again, return to the Lord your God. And why? Well, because it is, uh, it is the, rem- you know, when we get to heaven, it is the removal of all wrong, bad, horrible, awful stuff. It is a reversal of what the world is like now. You'll be replete, full. You'll be satisfied. You'll be rejoicing. There is a repayment for the rubbish stuff that's happening in the world now. And perhaps above all, the most glorious and wonderful uh, recognition that God is God. And that he is ours. And we are his for all eternity. Let me pray for us now and then Phil will come and lead us in further prayers. And I've said amen. Father, thank you that uh, when we return to you, as you bid your people to do here in Joel, uh, there are wonderful promises of a wonderful future. Lord, please help us to rejoice. Help us to delight in these wonderful truths. Help us to look ahead uh, with confidence to our own place with you. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to encourage one another. And to live our lives for you now in in joyful delight of all the good things which await for your name's sake. Amen.